Well, providentially, in our journey through the Belgic Confession, we were nearly at Articles 30 and 31, which discuss the blessing of the office bearers upon the church. And so we're skipping ahead just one article to consider that truth this morning. Articles 30 and 31 on page uh, 84 and 85 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But first I'd like to read with you two brief passages from Scripture. First, from Titus chapter 1. Now, Titus was a minister whom God set in the church in Crete through the Apostle Paul. And by all accounts, the church in Crete was a tough place to minister. A place that was filled with lots of superstition and false religion. And that false religion crept into the church, as often is the case when people come to Christ, they, they don't leave all of their baggage behind immediately. And so some of that falsehood was coming into the church and it was causing division, it was causing strife, it was, it was wreaking havoc in the church. And so that's part of why Paul wrote to Titus. And we need to hear that uh, this morning. So we're going to read uh, beginning in verse 5 and going through verse 14 of Titus 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Amen. And then, turning a little further back in the New Testament to 1 Peter, I'd like to read with you the first seven verses of chapter 5 in 1 Peter. The first seven verses of chapter 5. Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. 
Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Amen. Looking then to Articles 30 and 31 of our Belgic Confession, this portion of our confession leads us to recall that we believe that this church, this true church, must be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord has taught us in His Word. Polity means form of government. This true church must be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord has taught us in His Word, namely, that there must be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and to administer the sacraments. Also elders and deacons who together with the pastors form the council of the church that by these means the true religion may be preserved and the true doctrine everywhere propagated. Likewise transgressors punished and restrained by spiritual means. Also that the poor and distressed may be relieved and comforted according to their necessities. By these means everything will be carried on in the church with good order and decency when faithful men are chosen according to the rule prescribed by St. Paul in his epistle to Timothy. We believe that the ministers of God's word, the elders and the deacons, ought to be chosen to their respective offices by a lawful election by the church, with calling upon the name of the Lord, and in that order which the word of God teaches. Therefore every one must take heed not to intrude himself by improper means, but is bound to wait till it shall please God to call him, that he may have testimony of his calling and be certain and assured that it is of the Lord. As for the ministers of God's word, they have equally the same power and authority wheresoever they are, as they are all ministers of Christ, the only bishop and the only head of his church. Moreover, in order that this holy ordinance of God may not be violated or slighted, we say that every one ought to esteem the ministers of God's word and the elders of the church very highly for their work's sake, and be at peace with them without murmuring, strife, or contention as much as possible. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I've said it before, and I'm certain I will mention it again. The seed of Adam is prone to extremes, and those extremes tend to be dangerous. Consider how many sins are sinful simply because of their extremism. Food is good, but enjoyed to an extreme, the consumption of food becomes the sin of gluttony. Wine is fine, but enjoyed by the bottleful, it becomes the sin of drunkenness. Love of a leader is appropriate, but when taken to an extreme, it becomes the sin of idolatry, plain and simple. Also in the church, we tend to err on one end of the spectrum or the other. And so in the history of the church, we have seen the extremism of hierarchy, the exaltation of individuals to positions of exceptional power, leading them to possess power which was damaging to the church and to be regarded with honor that is really due only to God. That sin of hierarchy it's dreadful. We need to avoid that. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are the, 
the leaderless traditions that have arisen in the church in the past. Where no one is raised up or where those who are raised up are raised up randomly and without any training, without any attention given to their qualifications. I, I think I can safely say we're not tempted by those particular extremes. And that's a blessing. But we are tempted toward a different sinful extreme in church leadership. As Americans, we love our liberty. And that passion for liberty tends to produce an independent streak and a craving for democracy that have no place in the church of Christ. As much as we cherish our American government, and we should, the church is not a democratic republic. It's a monarchy. Here we serve the king who rules with absolute sovereignty. And so should we insist on our independence, which is what we do when we speak against the office bearers whom God has set over us, which we do when we refuse to heed their admonitions, which we do when we use lobbying and petitions to seek by human manipulations to get our way to rally the majority. When we do that kind of thing that is perhaps at times fitting in a democratic republic, what we really do is we reject the sovereignty of our king. And that is an extreme that we must never embrace. And it's to that end that our forefathers wrote, that end and several others, that they wrote in Articles 30 and 31 to remind us that the church is not a democracy, nor is it a hierarchy, nor is it an independent collaboration of loosely affiliated individuals. The church is a kingdom in which our king rules with absolute and gracious sovereignty. And within his kingdom, he cares for us through the office bearers whom he raises up, whom he ordains, by whom he exercises his sovereignty over us. And that lays some particular obligations upon us as a church, but also on these men before us who must come to recognize that they do not serve at their own pleasure, nor do they serve at the pleasure of a particular con uh, constituency of the congregation, but they serve only and entirely at the pleasure of their king. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. That Christ cares for his church through the office bearers whom he ordains. Not whom we ordain, but whom he ordains. And the first thing we need to see about that is the task to which they're called, that they are charged with the oversight of the church. That's our first point. Understand that, that what we confess in this part of our confession stands in stark contrast to what most churches today confess, if not in word, at least in deed. Most in our culture, most churches in our culture regard church government rather pragmatically. That is, according to whatever works. 
They're not tied to a particular polity, a particular kind of government. They're tied to whatever works. And so if the business model that is taught in our colleges, if that works well for leading the church, they're fine with that. Whatever gets the job done. Different congregations, they say, ought to be free to establish different kinds of government. Whatever style fits your particular group, your particular aims, your particular goals. But my friends, that approach to governing the church is wrong because God has given us instruction concerning the leadership of the church and God does not change. And therefore, we must follow His instruction, His commands in every age, in every circumstance, trusting that He knows better than we do what we need. From the time when God first organized the church under Moses, He gave particular instructions for how the church is to, to be governed. Now, kids, you understand the church has existed from the garden. But we see a, a strict organization of the church and its government arising under Moses. And God gave particular insights into how the church was to be governed in that era. He gave priests who had particular callings with regard to the church and, and how they were to lead in the worship and in the instruction of God's people. He had prophets who were to not only instruct, but to challenge and admonish and encourage the people according to their needs. He raised up kings, and before that, judges, who would lead the people that they might live in a way that is godly and pleasing to the Lord. When they followed those instructions, they were richly blessed. When they went against those instructions, they went astray from the Lord, and they sinned and had to be punished. Later in the New Testament, Jesus altered that governance because now the church would no longer be the same as the state and would no longer be sequestered away from the world. Now the church would be spread throughout the world among all the kingdoms of men. And so he raised up apostles, which means those who are sent. They went forth laying the foundation for the church throughout the world, but also through their testimony, both spoken and written, they laid the foundation for the government of the church as it was spread among the kingdoms of the world. What does the Lord teach us through those apostles about the continued oversight of the church? Well, He tells us what men, what officers ought to stand over the church. He ordained for ministers, also called pastor teachers or elders who teach, to go forth proclaiming the gospel, both among God's people as they are gathered and in the world. Among those who congregate and also from house to house, they are to teach, to admonish, to instruct, to build up the church that it might be equipped for the work of ministering. In other words, it's not the calling of the ministers to go out necessarily doing all the ministering. It's the call of the church as a whole to make disciples of the nations. And the minister is called to equip them to that end with the administration of the truth. Then the elders, they have the kingly calling. If the, the ministers have the prophetic calling, the elders have the kingly calling of leading, of ruling over God's people, that all things might be done decently and in good order, that God's people might be instructed individually, discipled in their calling, that those who stray might be drawn back by God's word and by the discipline that he has ordained. And then there are the deacons. Those who have a priestly calling among us to serve. They are those who are raised up to meet the needs of those who are weak. 
to ensure that the needs of the church body are met so as not to be a distraction for the elders and the ministers in their work, and also to lead all of us in offering that beautiful sacrifice of loving service. By means of these three offices, God ordains to oversee his church, to strengthen it, to protect it, to guide it. And what does that oversight involve? It involves doctrine. Our office bearers, each according to his particular sphere of service, is called to lead the church to know what God has spoken, what he has done in the past, what he is doing now, what he calls us to do, and what he commands us not to do. By teaching us through the pulpit, through family visiting, through catechizing, through example and admonition, the church is led to cherish God's word and all that it lays before us. You men are called to lead the church to cherish the truth of God. Think about that. When you walk into a hospital room, when you meet with a family that is having financial struggles, when you go on that discipline visit or that family visit, your authority consists in that truth which God has put in your hand. So don't walk into that room with this book closed. And don't walk into that room thinking that you have all the wisdom, that you have all the insight, that you have all the understanding they need. You don't. You don't even know the situation into which you're walking. But God does. And He's the one who has sent you there. And so He calls His people, especially the elders among us, but also the deacons as they go forth ministering in His name, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. They might not want to hear it, and other times they'll crave it. But regardless of the weather of those to whom we minister, the, the, the attitude that they bear, our calling is to bring that word, those truths, to bear in their lives, to convince, to exhort, to build up, to strengthen, and also to rebuke. There's a negative aspect to that. Remember what we heard in Titus. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And there will always be those who would turn us from the truth, those who would, would bring forth that which is false. Because Satan hates the truth, and he hates the church, and therefore he will seek to infiltrate it. And your calling is to reject that, to hold it at bay. Whether that falsehood comes from the pulpit or from the devotionals that our people are handed or from just the imagination of men. We must lead them in what to believe but also what not to believe. And we must lead them, we must guide them also in matters of life and conduct. There's an idea in our culture today that what a person does is of no consequence. 
Some have argued that the scandalous behavior of certain politicians should not enter into whether they are qualified for office, should not even be considered in the pages of the newspaper, but that is a a claim that is utterly at variance with, with what we read in God's Word. What we read in God's Word says that what we do is absolutely essential to demonstrating what we believe. Paul says, what is it profit, my brethren, if, or James says, what is it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, he says. And that's why in Titus 1, and also in 1 Timothy 3, we see such clear qualifications for the elder. He is to be blameless. That is, in the eyes of men, there's nothing to allege. Yes, he sins. He falls short. He's still being perfected like every one of us, but he's striving to be faithful. A steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, to drunkenness, not violent or greedy for money, but instead he's to be hospitable. He's to be loving. He's to welcome people in. He is to be a lover of what is good and not what is wicked. He is to be sober-minded, careful in his thought. He's to be just. He's to be holy, a, a man who is self-controlled. He is to have but one wife. Unlike those in the culture who in that age might have married multiple women who in our age seek to live as though they have multiple women. And much the same is said with regard to the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3. They too are to be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. They shall have been tested and found blameless. And their wives, their families ought to show the same. And why? Because the way that you live doesn't doesn't the testimony of the kings of Israel demonstrate this? The way that you, their leaders, live is the way that they, the people of God, will live. When an ungodly king was raised up, the people themselves became ungodly. When a godly and faithful king was raised up, the people themselves became godly and faithful. And so it goes with the elders and the deacons of the church that the behavior that you demonstrate before the congregation is the most powerful sermon you will preach. And you will all preach that sermon for better or for ill. And so God calls you to lead them in good conduct. Galatians 6 talks about this a bit. I just want to dwell on this for just one moment more. In Galatians 6... We're told, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's a calling to the whole church. But the church will not restore one who has sinned against it unless you men set the tone. The church will not pray for those who have sinned against them unless you men are leading them in praying. The church will not embrace those who have publicly sinned 
unless you first wrap your arms around them. But if you do, they will. Later on in that chapter, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. You brothers, what you sow in this congregation, we as a whole will reap by the the life that you live. Because unless we're living, we as office bearers, unless we're living a life that is equivalent to the words that we're speaking, then the words that we speak are lies and they will know it. And so we must guide them not only in doctrine but in matters of life and conduct and also in caring for the needs of the church. Remember where the office of deacon originated. The apostles at the time were serving as the ministers and elders of the church And there simply weren't enough of them to spend their time in preaching and in praying and in discipling and in disciplining and also to ensure that the needs of the widows and the orphans and the strangers were cared for. And so they caused the church to raise up these men as deacons, which literally means those who serve at table. They're waiters. And that's such an important task because... Did Jesus not say that those among you who lead must be those who serve? Those who would be first must be the least. And so when our deacons set before us that example of serving, of meeting the needs of the widows and orphans, of of going and sitting and walking alongside of those who are, are dealing with financial struggles in their lives or other struggles in their lives... They're setting an example for all of us. And when you draw others in the congregation in according to their gifts to do that, you are teaching them one of the most important lessons this church can learn. And that's the lesson of how to show the love of Christ concretely and truly. So we're called to meet the needs of the church. The poor you will have with you always, Jesus says. And that's a gift for us. So that we can demonstrate the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need the nature and the nurture of these offices. Recognize that as these men teach you doctrine and as they admonish you when you go astray, when they live a life of holiness before you, and when they seek to meet the needs of the church, both physical and spiritual, The work that they're doing is the work that has been given by God. It's God who is speaking through them, working through them, guiding and leading through these men. So let us praise God that He has put them among us. But let's pray for them too, recognizing what a great burden they they bear. I can see them sinking lower in their seats as I speak because they recognize the weight of the office that is upon them. So pray for our deacons. We come on Sunday, we see the spit and polish image that everything is just fine. How's things going for you? Oh, it's great. But it's not great. And the deacons often are the ones who see that and have to walk with families through situations that sometimes seem impossible. And the elders, 
They walk into people's lives at their most difficult times when they've just had a a diagnosis that is the last diagnosis they ever expected to hear or when they're living in a sin that they do not want to be confronted concerning. They're the ones who knock on the doors of those who don't want to hear a knock from anybody at church or have to pick up the phone repeatedly and try to get a hold of that person who doesn't want to answer. It's hard to carry that burden. And yet the well-being of the church demands it. So pray that God would sustain these men, that God would equip these men, that God would use these men for the well-being of the church. And recognize that God has raised them up. The second point here, and it's a brief point, but it's important, is that God is the one who raises up these men to serve the church. And so they are called by God through the selection of the church. Really, it should be no surprise that God raises up our office bearers the way he does. Because in the Christian life as a whole, we depend on the work of God, and yet at the same time, he calls us to act, right? He says he will meet our needs, and then he brings someone else alongside to meet that need in his name. And so in our confession, we read this mix of how God raises up his people through the church. They ought to be chosen to their respective offices by the lawful election by the church with a calling upon the name of the Lord in the order which God's word teaches. This is a process very similar to what we use in electing our public officials. But understand that that imitates this, not the other way around. In Acts 1, we read about how the church was led to replace Judas Iscariot. And they did that by first of all gathering the church together and laying before them the qualifications for this office of apostle. And then the existing apostles who were already serving set before them two men who met those qualifications. And they prayed that God would reveal which of these two men he himself had chosen. And then they cast their lots, says Acts chapter 1. They prayed and said, O Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship. And they cast their lots. That's a weird way of speaking in the Greek. If you were talking about casting lots, you know, to randomly select someone, drawing the short straw, as it were. It would be a singular verb and a singular object. One person would cast the lot. That's not what we have here. We have multiple people, each casting their lots. That's voting. It's the same grammar that we would find in the description of juries in the Roman jury system. And it's exactly what we do here. And it's such a wise system because God has raised these men up from among us. The office bearers who are serving, they know these men perhaps a little deeper than most people do because they know the things that are spoken in private. They know the the things that are discussed in the family visits. And so they set before the church those whom they know to be qualified insofar as we can know the hearts of any. And they ask the church to pray together, asking God to reveal which of these men he has chosen. And then we all cast our lots. What a blessing that is. 
Because it means that there is no bishop, there is no overseer who has ordained these, or who has set these men in office by his own authority. If that was the case, you men could doubt whether a mistake had maybe been made, whether some politics had been played, whether that individual was acting faithfully or falsely. But not when the whole church casts its lot. Calling on God to reveal His selection through them. Then we know that God is the one who has called you. God is the one who has drawn you out to serve. So recognize, brothers, that this is the work of God who has set you before us. And that if God has called you, if God has chosen you, then God will equip you for the work to which you've been called. And brothers and sisters, let us not forget the significance of what we do when we gather in a congregational meeting. There is always that temptation that Satan seeks to excite among us to play politics, to say, no, I want to I vote for this guy because he's going to represent my interests best. No, he's not supposed to represent your interests. He's supposed to represent the interests of the Lord. So let that be our desire. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our longing. And let that be what guides the, the ballot that we cast. Which of these men is most apt, most suited, most gifted to do the will of God. That doesn't mean that the other men who have been nominated aren't. But we're praying that God will give us the wisdom, the insight to select those men whom He has chosen right now. And because it's God who raises them up, then they are also commended to the submission of the church. And that's our last point. Our Article 31 in our confession points out that all office bearers are equal to each other. The ministers are all equal to the other ministers. The elders to the other elders. The deacons to the other deacons. There's no hierarchy within our church council. And therefore they are all to be esteemed. They are all to be respected as representatives sent by God Himself. Who bear His authority as long as they are acting in agreement with God's Word and in fulfillment of their calling. And that's why they're commended to the submission of the church. You know, some worry that it's, it's dangerous to raise up some individuals in the church and give them particular authority. After all, it could tempt them to be tyrants who abuse their authority. And you know what? That temptation's there. And sometimes in their sin, men abuse it. We know that. We've seen that. But we also know that is the exception to the rule. And it's an exception that we were told to expect. In Acts 20, Paul urges the elders and God urges the elders through him to guard the church against the false shepherds that will arise in their midst. We know that will happen because Satan never rests. But we also know that is the exception to the rule. And we cannot, we cannot regulate our lives, nor can we ignore God's Word on the basis of exceptions. The rule, what we normally see, is office bearers who serve humbly. Men who, who recognize that only God can equip them to this task. Men who recognize that they've been given a task that is greater than any of them. Men who recognize that they must rely upon the Lord. That's the rule. And because that is the rule that God taught us to expect, we submit to them joyfully. 
That's why God calls us to, to nominate men in the first place to whom we can submit. Consider again our reading from Titus 1. An elder must be blameless. A man whose actions are not violent or rash, leading men to despise him. His character evident in his humility, in his goodness, in his godliness, in the, the faithfulness of his family. A man who is able to teach with encouragement, but also to rebuke with authority, and likewise the deacons. They're to be godly men, men whom we respect, men whom we trust. Now, of course, no man can perfectly meet those qualifications, but we choose those whom we know fit them largely because the work of God is in them and because it's been demonstrated. We don't, we don't select men. We don't nominate men for office thinking, you know, if we, if we nominate them to office, maybe God will turn them. Maybe God will transform them and make them these kind of men. We don't do that. We mustn't do that, right? Because if we do that, we're being faithless to God's word. We put men in office to whom we can submit. And then we submit joyfully. 1 Timothy 5 says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, often that's been used to remind us that we're called to pay our minister. And that's true. But we also are called to honor all of our office bearers. Part of that means protecting them, ensuring that they're well cared for. We shouldn't overburden men by putting them in office. And we can easily do that. Sometimes the most, oftentimes, the most qualified men are the men who already are juggling a bunch of balls up in the air because they're faithful men. And we need to be careful that we're not overburdening them to the detriment of their family, to the detriment of their walk. We also need to make sure that they're honored in that we don't undermine them. We don't speak against them. We don't refuse to shake their hands when they make a decision with which we disagree. But rather we thank them. We express our appreciation to them. We acknowledge the countless hours that they spend not only in meetings but in people's living rooms and, and simply in prayer. They're worthy of, of double honor. And furthermore, Paul says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. People will falsely accuse our office bearers. You know why? Because Satan is real. And he seeks to undermine the authority of those whom God has set over his church. He will always strive to do that. And your calling is to not listen to him. If there's a legitimate sin, then let them bring it with evidence to the consistory. And let the consistory not fail to deal with it. But gossip and slander, we should not only not give ear to, but we ought to rebuke. And when those two, two witnesses do come forward, when a, a wrongdoing by the office bearers is demonstrated, then those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. These men we must hold to a higher standard. Because they represent the Lord for us. Peter has a different take on it. And one 
that is essential for us to understand. He says, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. Submit yourselves to the elders. Hebrews 13 reminds us that these men are charged with the well-being of our soul and we should ensure that they have that task before them not as a burden but as a joy. That's what it means to submit ourselves to the elders. And then immediately thereafter, he says, all of you be submissive to one another, clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Recognize, if we're not willing to humble ourselves under the elders and deacons whom God sets over us, we will not be willing to humble ourselves before one another. Husbands will not be willing to bear the burden alongside of their wives. Children will not be willing to submit to their parents. The rich will not be willing to humble themselves before the poor. And we will not humble ourselves before God. If you won't humble yourself before those whom God has raised up and set over you for your good, you will not humble yourself before God. And that is a dreadful sin. Just as we call our children to honor and to obey their parents for the sake of honoring and obeying God, so we all are called to honor and obey these office bearers as a means of honoring and obeying the Lord. But that lays a burden on you men. We must not serve as those who are difficult to submit to. Before he calls the church to submit to you, he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In other words, don't rule them with harshness. Don't rule them as little tyrants. Don't hold your authority over them, but as Jesus led, you must lead. With a towel around your waist, a basin of water at your feet, and their feet in your hand. That's a difficult calling. So we need to be in prayer. In prayer for them, that they might be men who serve in such a way that we long to show them thankfulness, to show them humility. Prayer for us, that we might be made able to do it. My friends, our temptation, also here in Pella, is to express our independence. But praise God, we are not independent. We are servants of Christ, our true King. And in His goodness, Christ cares for His church through the office bearers whom He has ordained. So let us praise Him for that. Let us give Him thanks for that. And let us pray for those men whom God has raised up for us. To Him be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank You for this reminder of what You have done in our midst and what You are doing. We pray that You would enable us to meditate carefully upon that word and to humbly take up the task to which it calls each of us, submitting to these men whom you set over us and for them 
taking up that task with humble reliance upon you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.